0: this is running on emotion i'm alistair eakin and i've been speaking to some of the biggest names in british sport it's a podcast about the role of emotion in sport from pride to fear from anger to joy and all stops in between in this episode of running on emotion i'm talking to britain's most decorated female olympian whose story takes a bit of telling, so compelling, so extraordinary is it. In many ways, she embodies the sporting emotion that we'll be talking about, defiance. She's a rower who displayed it in bucket loads from the outset and she needed every last drop of it to achieve her goals. Six times a world champion, her Olympic odyssey spanned two decades and took her from Australia to Brazil and all stops in between. In each of the Sydney, Athens and Beijing games, she won a silver medal. Memorably, in front of a delirious crowd at Dorney Lake, she turned silver into gold in her epic triumph alongside Anna Watkins as Britain basked in the glorious Olympic gold rush in 2012. Not content, she went to her fifth Games in Rio and bagged yet another silver medal to go with a PhD in criminal law, a black belt in karate, and the subsequent chairmanship of UK sport. I think the correct label might be polymath. So accomplished and versatile is she, and of course, after multiple honours... She was made a dame in 2017. Dame Catherine Granger, thank you so much for being here. Can I call you Catherine? (laughs) Absolutely, I'll insist on it. Thank you very much. It's kind of overwhelming, isn't it, everything you've achieved? Do you ever stop and take stock of it all?
1: No, I don't think many of us do, do we? We don't really sit and sort of soak up all all our years that are behind us. You know, there's obviously... Bits I'm very aware of, very proud of, but I think generally I'm living in the moment or looking to the future still, which I'm is sure.
0: healthily. Yeah, the, the, your sporting career, I mean, like all the greats, I suppose, contained pretty much every emotion. Would that be fair to say? How significant a factor were they in your mind?
1: Yeah, I think anyone who is lucky enough to be involved in sport in any sense, whether it's watching, taking part, competing, supporting everyone would admit it's very, very emotional. And probably the the bigger moments I went to, the Olympic Games, which in my sport is the ultimate, what surprised me was how, how much those moments heighten the emotions. So when you think you've had nerves, you think you've had sentimentality, you think you've had anything, everything around games time becomes just maximised. So the emotions you normally recognise and expect are just on a whole different scale when it really matters and things are on the line. So I think I've experienced them
0: all now. I'm quite sure you have. I'm wondering what you were like as a little girl, Catherine. Were you were you so driven even then? You see, I I don't remember being
1: driven. But if I speak to obviously I do speak to my family and I was just there was four of us in our family, my mum and my dad and my big sister. And they always talk about me. I mean fondly hopefully but I always was competitive and I was very competitive with my big sister. I think there's an easy thing if you're a younger sibling. There's someone naturally there to compete with all the time. So um, we had some a good, healthy, hopefully healthy competition. And when there was something I wanted to do, when there was something that, that attracted my attention, or I would got passionate or interested in, then yes, I'd say I was probably driven in most things.
0: Okay, so laser focused in in that instance. I mean, when you think about your your family, obviously everybody's shaped by their by their family, by their parents. It seems particularly your auntie Kate and your grandmother from Aberdeen played quite big roles. Would that be right?
1: Yeah, and do you know what? It's really sad because neither of them are, are with us anymore. So it's always really poignant. But I was lucky. I came from a really wonderful sort of happy, loving, supportive family. And I had very, very strong female role models in my life. And my gran was just exceptional. And she was, um, she was married to my, obviously, my granddad. And he was a sort of local policeman through the wars and, and in the northeast of Scotland. And my gran sort of was mainly at home and looking after her two daughters. And, but she would do all this baking, all this cooking, and then look after the prisoners when they were in the police house. And just very, very caring, passionate woman, very strong as well. And my aunt, um, when she was still really young, kind of early 20s, sort of left home and moved to the States with her, you know, boyfriend at the time, who became my uncle, and um, just sort of set out in this very different path, kind of rebelling against, you know, kind of formal education and the normal way that everyone in the family had been and just set out somewhere totally different. So it'd always been this kind of pioneering spirit of very wonderful role models in my family, of people who have just gone out and followed their passions and their dreams. And,
0: and were you aware of the fact that that was making an impact on you at the time? I mean, there's an element of what you've just said of, of defiance and kind of rebellion there, isn't there?
1: I certainly wasn't aware at the time. And because um, I guess to me, that's my grand, that's my aunt, that's, you know, same with my mum. And I think what it instilled in me was I kind of sense that there was no set path I needed to follow. You know, life creates incredible opportunities and incredible options and they were all there to be taken. And I didn't feel I had to be a particular way or do a certain thing. And the same with my mum and dad, they're really encouraging to just try stuff and try different things. So I suppose what was, rather than kind of learning, you know, my family have this sort of defiant, rebellious side to it, it was more just, that was okay, that wasn't something different, that was something that was
0: available to me. Quite enlightening approach, isn't it? Perhaps not all that normal, maybe, I don't know. Um, Obviously, we're here today to, to talk about Sporting defiance, which of course in itself encompasses a kind of range of emotions really, the capacity for endurance and intensity of effort to overcome obstacles and opponents. It's, it's an expression too, isn't it, of hunger and desire. We've mentioned the connotations of rebellion, resistance, that kind of thing. When you look at your career in the whole, fair to say that defiance played a, a fairly pivotal role?
1: Yeah, I think it is probably fair to say. And again, I I wouldn't say I would be aware of it at the time. And it wasn't something I deliberately set out to do. If I was asked to describe myself, I wouldn't say the first thing would be defiant or rebel. But I think when faced with certain challenges in my career, I've not been afraid to take on some of the harder challenges, I suppose, that have been in front of me. And even in spite of many people perhaps being surprised at that approach or advising against it, even stronger and if there's something that I still did want to achieve or felt it was possible, then I was very confident to take it, even it's always carried a risk with it. But yeah, I'm glad I did it.
0: Yeah, well, history bears it out, that's for sure. I, I want to take you back, if I can, to your second year at Edinburgh University. You'd done a little bit of rowing. You'd showed some willing, which is an interesting phrase. Those your words, by the way. And when it came to selection, you were then named in the fifth boat, not really what you had in mind can you tell me what you did the night of selection or non-selection as it was
1: well, well it was it was selection in the worst possible sense of those few who haven't been put in the best boats will form together and, and become a sort of motley crew who at the time we were told that evening you'll you'll basically make good social rowers or part of the club you won't really be competitive and you won't really achieve anything and I have to say I went into the meeting much more optimistic or confident of where I'd be selected so my first reaction was utter shame. I was absolutely mortified. I was really embarrassed uh, and really kind of shocked of that's how bad I really am. And I was at University of Edinburgh and it was in one of the big lecture halls. We got this announcement and I left and I left on my own. And I remember, and it all sounds very dramatic now, talking of heightened emotion. It was very emotional. And for people who know Edinburgh, it's a beautiful hill volcano in the centre of it called Arthur's Seat. And it was very dark because it was a sort of a late autumn, early winter night in Edinburgh. And I don't know why, I kind of marched my way up Arthur's Seat, which is probably not advisable, lone female. And I was kind of, you know, tears in my eyes and I was angry and I was angry at myself and I was frustrated and I was disappointed and I was embarrassed and all these things were kind of raging around me. And I got to the top of Arthur's Seat and I had this real moment of Kind of confronting it and sort of saying, "What you know? Why, why did I get this so wrong? And why am I having this such strong reaction to it?" And I think it was like my Scarlett O'Hara moment of, sort of raging against the, with the fires behind me and and saying, "I will never, I will never put myself in that position again. I'll never, you know, be overconfident. I'll never think I'm better than I am." And I also had to confront if this is something. That matters this much to me. I need to find a way to get it right. So you know, if I'm going to come back down Arthur's Seat, I'm going to have to be better for it. And if I want to do this, I'll need to you know sort of accept being humble and accepting I'm not good enough and accepting that I need to learn from others and learn you know almost go back to square one and start again. And uh, so although on the night it was not an enjoyable experience, it probably taught me one of the strongest kind of lessons of my whole career, and it stayed with me my whole career of that always feeling there was something more to be done, always feeling there was ways to improve, always feeling there was other people I could learn from to improve. And that definitely helped me.
0: Amazing, amazing story. And Defiance kind of personified, I think, probably on that night. And you needed it, didn't you, given the scale of the tasks that you subsequently faced and the the brutal physical nature, particularly of your sport. Um, Catherine, can you talk to me about the kind of sheer physical exertion required for rowing at the top level. I mean, rowers, it seems to me, talk quite a lot about the darkness. <laughs> so uh, that means that you take yourself right to the outer edges of physical capacity.
1: Yeah, it's really hard. It's really hard to stay in a nice warm room trying to describe just the extreme physical stress that you go through. I mean, during a race itself, it's depends on the, the sort of boat and the category you're in, but it could be you know, around six, six and a half minutes, of your race. And it's a very explosive start. It's absolutely from zero to maximum instantaneously. And so you have the first sort of minute where the first few strokes where it feels almost the energy is for free. You're thinking, yeah, here we go. And then almost from that point on, it starts to hurt and then it just gets worse. And you are, you're, you're maximum for about just under a minute. And then you try and hit the right rhythm that will see you through. But you are just under. Your maximum the whole way through a race. And then you have to lift again at the end. So you're, you're kind of fading and fatiguing. You're running out of everything. You've hit the endurance phase, but you've run out of that. You've run out of all your kind of explosive muscle capabilities. You're running out of oxygen hugely. You're hugely oxygen deprived. So also you're struggling to even think and kind of make decisions at that point. And then you have to find a sprint finish. It's extraordinarily difficult to get right. The perfect or the close to perfect races, it is that the final stroke, you couldn't have done anything more, but you've paced it just right. Um, but like anything, if you win those races, you feel no pain. And if you lose them, then you hurt for a long time after.
0: You need some serious willpower, don't you, to tell your brain there's still something there, even if the tank is is flashing on empty.
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, if you speak to most, I mean, pretty much every rower I know, or people who train for rowing, the, the rowing machine is kind of a, a particularly hard test for us all. And you, again, push yourself to the absolute limit, and it's very easy to do it on those machines. They're incredibly brilliant training machines for us. But you also, your brain is telling you, you know, you could just stop. You, know, you literally could just put the handle down. And it's all over. And it's over. The pain would stop, and the agony would stop, and you'd be able to breathe again and think again. And you need to override that every single time. So every time we did a test on the rowing machine... You had to, at some point during that test, convince yourself not to stop and let it all end. And it's the survival mechanism kicks in. Your brain is trying to tell you, you could protect yourself. This could be finished. And you have to convince yourself, no, it's worth
0: going through the pain again and again and again. Extraordinary. And you obviously need defiance to kind of face down that pain. And on occasions, I guess you're, you're ailing body as well because your body's not immune to... <laughs> To some of these pressures, I'm thinking particularly you had a nasty disc injury, didn't you, in your back ahead of Athens. That rehab was was tough. You started to doubt your body a little bit?
1: Yeah, I was lucky. I had I had the first few years of my career absolutely injury-free, you know, really robust. A lot of people in the rowing family have a lot of back injuries. And I'd been incredibly good and hadn't felt anything. And then I had re- almost a catastrophic sort of back injury in, in 2003, the year before the Athens Olympics. And... I hadn't realized at the time sort of how bad it was or it could be. And I'd sort of blown one of my discs apart. And the, the, the stuff, it's a very technical term, actually. The <laughs> stuff that comes out of the I never pretend to be a scientist in this area. The stuff that comes out of the disc was actually in, in the sort of my spinal canal and was compressing on a nerve. And I was starting to lose power to one leg. And we sort of realized, I had a very good physio at the time who realized very quickly just how damaging this could be when we realised what the problem was so the initial warning was the best thing to do is have a sort of back operation to go in and fix it and my coach at the time said if you have the back operation then the Olympics is over and your career is probably over so we sort of had an emergency gathering of best doctors we could find the best physio I was working with already we had this very short period of time that if we could try and make some improvement with the, the nerve compression then we would avoid the operation and we literally was pushed right to the final day and we finally saw a tiny change in the positive direction. Saved the operation, didn't have to go through it. So everything was still back on. But it was hard because while I was dealing with this sort of almost live injury, somehow it was easier. It was horrible and challenging and you're taken away from your normal, the people I trained with and I was kind of on my own and that was hard knowing what I was missing. But I had a very clear purpose and I had this incredible thing to kind of take on and working with brilliant people to help me. In a way, the hardest thing was was afterwards, once it had healed, well, not completely healed, but it was back to functioning properly. And the first few months after that, and was the mental side was difficult because I'd never had an injury before and suddenly I'd had a big injury. I didn't know, would I ever have one again? Would it let me down at some point when I was testing it and pushing it to limit every day? What happens if it just didn't stand up to that? And And that, the mental side, I found mm-hmm. in a way harder than the physical injury itself because... I'd never doubted it before and suddenly I wasn't sure.
0: Yeah, that must have been very, very difficult. A lot of people find rehab extremely hard, don't they, mentally. You obviously had to battle the elements as well. I mean, nothing, it seemed to me, stopped your training, rain, wind, snow, ice, countless mornings breaking layers of ice off the water in the morning to get your boat into the water. Yeah, I mean, the, it sounds it sounds <laughs> utterly hideous.
1: I think after this conversation nobody will ever want to go rowing again. So I to, there are a lot of positives. Yeah, we'll get but, to those. But um now the only thing that really stops it is if the ice is so thick you can't break it <laughs> and we've had a few of those days. Or you know if the wind is so strong it's actually sinking conditions because obviously if you create huge waves on a on a rowing lake then it's too dangerous or lightning because they don't like us being struck by lightning. Okay, so, so if
0: you wake up and it's it's really really cold, the ice is super thick, and there's a lot of lightning and thunder about. You, you are you're punching the air or you or you're crying because that's that's actually denying you what you want to go and do.
1: Well, initially you're thinking, "Oh, it's brilliant because if it was just, you know, if it was a little bit less wind or a little bit less ice, we'd still have to go into it and that'd be miserable." So initially you punch the air and then you realize then your day is is devoted to the rowing machine, which right. is a different kind of torture.
0: What about defiance in the face of, of coaches as well? I mean, your early coach, Mike Spracklin, quite a tough taskmaster, not afraid of a, a harsh comment or two. Did that bring out your defiance side? It must have been one or two battles of wills.
1: Oh, yeah, I think that's part of that relationship. You know, coaches are ultimately trying to get you to perform in a way that sometimes even you don't know if you're capable of. And they really have different ways of accessing that and i've I've worked with a lot of a complete range of coaches and some you know are brilliant at really working with you very personally and you know very supportive, and very encouraging and and very nurturing and other ones who genuinely believe and and I had a conversation once with Mike Spracklin, saying, you know, I just need to be really tough on you because I know that brings out the best in you and i I wasn't sure if I agreed if I
0: <laughs> at the time
1: but he was sure that was the way and um you know almost they deliberately they, you know, it's almost a trying to provoke you. I don't think you can be capable of that. I don't know if you could do that. If you're the certain type of person, I suppose, it does cause a moment of defiance because you think, well, I'll prove you wrong and I'll show you. But when a coach tells you they're doing it deliberately to get that reaction, then you're put in a really difficult position because I almost didn't want to create that reaction because I'm proving him right. But I couldn't not. I couldn't <laughs> help myself because then it would be, well, then I'm not doing it. It's so catch-22. It is a bit catch-22. But yeah, I've definitely had... You know, in those training environments, in those competitive environments, there's also, you know, emotions of everyone is is high. So yeah, I've, I've had some really tough conversations over the years. And you can have very strong, very robust, very, you can have arguments, but it still needs to feel safe. I think if in any way you start to feel incredibly uncomfortable or, you know, because there is a strange sort of, um, I don't want to use the word power relationship because I always felt the coach had, more authority; they were ultimately the decision maker, their selector. They're kind of like the boss. They are like your boss, and there's, so there's a limit to how far you feel you can really push or test them at times. But at the same time, they often don't feel like they're the boss, and they just feel, you know, actually, you're the one in charge as an athlete, and they are trying to get something out of you. So sometimes, when you take away the heat of the moment, it's it's then it's really useful to have the conversations about exactly what we're trying to get to the bottom of there, because you lose that sometimes in those passionate
0: discussions. Yeah, I'm sure you do. Um we need to talk about the Olympics, obviously, the the games that have pretty much defined your your sporting existence. Your first Olympics, Sydney 2000. Did you always look at the Olympics as kind of this magical definition of the human spirit?
1: I do you know I I did, but well I probably looked at it as the not necessarily the definition of the human spirit but the, you know definition of i guess just incredible sport and you know this amazing moment once every four years in some country it happens and you see incredible incredible moments and performances and really inspiring stuff that's when it it almost elevated in in my consciousness of what it means and the reach it has and i i remember being in sydney in my very first olympic games in 2000, and in that opening ceremony, and it was, you know, it was absolutely extraordinary. And it was the biggest, you know, the venue it was the biggest ever stadium they've built for Olympic Games. And they they deliberately built it higher, and they built it so they could take away those top tiers so it would be usable in the future. But for those games, it was 115,000 seater, and it was it's packed, crazy. absolutely packed. So noise is deafening. You know, Flash bubble photography is going on. You know, everyone's cheering, and there's over 200 countries marching around the stadium. And then you have these incredible sort of messages through an opening stadium of the history of the games and where the flame is coming from and the original sort of lighting of it uh, back in Athens and the ancient Greeks are referenced and you think this this event you know began centuries before any of us were aware of it and hopefully will continue centuries afterwards and yeah I think it it was in the Sydney opening ceremony I got it I got the scale of it I realised this is an incredible creation. Of, for human beings and it's just designed for people to come together and play games together and compete but it, it means so much to so many people and has this amazing history that sits behind it and I felt very very small I felt very small <laughs> in that opening ceremony in every sense in the most wonderful way of this is I've, I've got this tiny tiny moment of my own history that's part of this much bigger thing around me and what what a privilege what an absolute privilege to be part of that.
0: And of course, there were some extraordinary performances there, as in everywhere else. But I mean, Cathy Freeman there was remarkable, wasn't it? In that uh, legendary 400 meters, that extraordinary suit she wore. You know, that was the the Olympics. Of course, that Steve Redgrave won his fifth gold. So you had some pretty powerful athletes knocking around you for you to look up at and 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 have a look and think, "Wow, I could be I could be part of that."
1: Yeah, and I think it's. It's almost like this, this twin thing goes on for you. If you're competing as an athlete, you're very focused on your event and your performance and, for me, the, the team I was in. But then I couldn't, and I didn't want to sort of disassociate everything that's happening around it, everything that means it's it's more than any other race you'll ever do. Because of the other performances happening, because of the other people making huge moments in sporting history, you're very aware of the the global reach and the, the impact on the city you're in. And there's so much else that happens at every Games that you kind of want to soak up that atmosphere while also still delivering
0: your role in it. Were you able to kind of wallow in in the emotion of it or were you quite process-driven, quite focused on your task in, in your boat? I mean, there was a team psychologist, wasn't there, who was working with you, Chris Shambrook. What sort of influence did he have on you and did he help bring that side of it out so that you could get a full appreciation of exactly what what it was you were involved in.
1: I think when you speak to athletes who've competed at the Games or competing, there's always this slight split and it's probably a spectrum, so there's probably a range. When you're going to compete in your event, do you make it just very practical, you almost make it normal. You really normalise it. So it's still, for us, it's still a 2,000 metre race. It's still six lanes, six countries in the final. It's very familiar. It's very normal. It's very something I've I've done many times before. Something that doesn't, it's not frightening. It's very, you know, you can very rationalise it so that you are just going to perform. And my boat doesn't know it's the Olympic Games. My boat just sitting in a piece of water, it could be anywhere. So, you know, that's how you take control of that situation. Or there's people who go... But I want to make it feel different. I want to be part of this. This is the biggest race I'll ever perform and I want it to feel like it's more and special and will bring out everything in me. And I think people move between that spectrum of where they need to find a sense of, you know, calm and control, but also excitement. When I was in Sydney and I was, we're meeting sort of the night before our final and we were going through the very rational, process-driven logistical planning of the next day. And it was it keeps it very calm and it keeps it very, you just know your role, you know what time you're going to get up in the morning, what you'll have for breakfast. You know, it's very manageable and it makes you feel like, yep, we've got this, it's fine. And I and I do like that, but I kind of, I don't want to, I like the emotion. I like the emotion coming into it. I need a bit of that. So our psychologist, Chris, came in and just sort of very casually, very kind of off the cuff, had never done this before. Oh, just want to check you're all okay. And we were like, yep, yeah, we've got it. We've got the plan. We're fine. We've got the plan. And then he sort of said, oh, and just out of interest, I'd love to ask you a couple of questions. I'm like, okay, fine. And he just said, just out of interest, you know, what, what, does, what does this race tomorrow mean to you? And it was just this kind of casually thrown out question that actually when you start thinking about it is so profound and so big. And everyone had very different motivations for what they did and why they did it and who they did it for. And, and it was one of those things we hadn't really talked about. So actually what was brilliant was everyone's very honest and just talked very, very openly about why that race tomorrow meant so much and what we were prepared to do to make sure it went as well as it could. And honestly, I mean, we really tapped into an emotion we'd never done before. It was the first time it was mentioned and it was the first time we kind of got to that depth of conversation between all of us. And I suppose there's a risk because you think, could it go too far over the edge? Could it become too emotional and, you know, kind of sopping in each other's arms about what the big day means but it was just right and it meant when we went out to race the next day in in the most wonderful way I felt a real responsibility suddenly for in a way I'd never felt before about those other people I was racing with I now know what their dreams are I know what their hopes are I know what who their motivations are and I, I have a part to play in them delivering what they want and I've got a very crucial part to play and I better get this right not just for me but now for other people as well for me, it was fabulous. I loved
0: it. I'm Alex Rodriguez, and I'm Jason Kelly from Bloomberg. This is The Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal making across sports, media, and entertainment We could spend hours dissecting each and every Olympic Games of yours, Catherine, and it would be fascinating, but needs must. And we will skip through some of them to some degree. Silver in Sydney in the four, greeted with enormous happiness. Um, obviously, you had that kind of agonising delayed, didn't you? Well, uh, there was a, a photo finish and you were given silver, not bronze, and that was all fantastic. A lot of challenges thereafter. You repeated it in Athens in the pair with Kath Bishop. And then in the build-up to Beijing, the, the World Championships in 2006, there was this seminal upgrading, can I call it that way, from, from silver to gold, which when I was looking at it and and thinking about it, it seemed to me really did fuel some of your defiance and your focus, involving the, the Russians doping?
1: Yeah, it was a really tough summer, if I'm honest. It was the first home world championships we'd had in this in this country for many, many years. So for all of us, it was the first time we competed in front of a home crowd. And it was the same lake that would go on and host the London Olympics. But at that point, we didn't know it was going to be the Olympic venue. So for us, it felt like this is the biggest home crowd we'll ever compete in front of. We were reigning world champions, we were defending world champions, and we were kind of very much had expected ourselves to be able to deliver another world title. And we got to the final and in the last sort of couple of hundred metres, we're overtaken by the Russians. I mean, I still remember we kind of crossed the line and there was this almost shock from the crowd. Never felt it before. This slight delay before there was a response and because it was a real upset. And obviously you have to go on the podium and it was really tough because we did feel in that moment, we've, we've got this wrong. We've, we completely got this wrong. We didn't, we knew there's a very strong Australian crew. We hadn't really expected the Russians to do that. The podium was awful and very emotional and we went into a very dark winter of kind of questioning everything. There's a real doubt of between ourselves and our coach, what are we not seen and what, what hadn't we, you know, we hadn't picked up on some of the signs and we hadn't delivered the race we should have and and all of us sort of really struggled at the start of that winter, but you kind of are fueled by, well, we'll have to get it right for next summer. That's fine. And then in the, oh gosh, it's about three, four months after the world championships, we were back training in the gym and our coach came up and he said, uh, I want to chat to you outside. And there was a slight pause and he said, champions. And I thought... Oh, but he's, he's Australian. He's got a strange sense of humour. That's fine. <laughs> so we went outside, and then he sort of gathered the four of us, and he said, "Just to let you know, I've just had it through. It's going to be released in about an hour. But the Russians you competed against have been found positive for testosterone, and they're about to be stripped of their medal, and you'll be upgraded." And there was this stunned silence because we didn't know. We didn't had never thought for a second that that was an option, and it was the weirdest. Experience because all four, four of us in the boat. All of us experienced it really differently, and there was there was no joy, there was no celebration. There was some anger, there was some upset. There was just real range of how do you how did you deal with this? How does this sink in? I remember being really angry about all those people who had gathered on that day to watch us watch us lose. They'd been robbed as well, so we'd been robbed of that moment. But people there had been robbed of of watching that as well. That can never be put right. You can get the medal. You can obviously change the history and change the title and the record books. but that moment's gone forever, and it's stolen from you. and people have experienced it on Olympic stages, which is even worse. but when the drugs cheating comes in, it, what it steals is so much more than just a medal position. It really does steal a lot from people's experience and what they think of themselves and what other people think of them and the meaning of racing. And I was very angry that pe- other people had brought cheating into our sport. It was very protective. it was a home home ground. It was our own sport, and someone destroyed all of that by cheating. So that was a really difficult thing to bounce back from.
0: yeah, I can well imagine. Uh, but I'm assuming also a, a significant driver as you headed to Beijing because although you couldn't reclaim your podium place from from the world championships, you could at least put heart and soul into the next Olympics and try to and try to make things right. So silver in Beijing, as it turned out, behind the Chinese, tough to take third consecutive silver. You described yourself as inconsolable after that, kind of like a form of grief. Those are strong words.
1: They are. And again, it's trying to explain to people why it's such an extreme reaction, because, you know...
0: It's an extraordinary achievement in itself.
1: Yeah, I've been very happy with the silver medal in my life, but on that day, really not. We had expected we could deliver a gold medal performance, it would be the first ever gold medal delivered by the women's rowing team for Great Britain. So there was all these kind of different things leading up to that. We'd been reigning world champions for three years in a row. You know, we had, had won the most results and the, were the sort of favourites at the start of that year. And... You kind of want to deliver. You know, when you're part of Team GB, it's not just the rowing team you're rowing for. You're part of this incredible, huge unit that's very successful and and very popular with the public. And you feel this is our moment. We've got incredible people who work with us and for us and around us and support us. You want to deliver for them as well. You want to deliver for the crowds. There's all these things you want to get it right for. The way we ultimately lost that gold was, you know, we were leading the race for nine-tenths of the 2000 metres and it was the last dying seconds we were beaten by the Chinese in front of their home crowd. Also, you get this incredible extreme reaction between the winners and the home crowd and the silver medalists and, and complete devastation. If you've been in sport for a while at a certain level, you can't help but be slightly defined by what you do. You do lose perspective a bit and it's not in a bad way, it's in a healthy way You kind of because it becomes everything to you. But I remember thinking, I don't really want to walk down my high street because if I, I, don't think I'll be able to look people in the eye because I feel I have disappointed. Really? Yeah, I feel I've disappointed people, and no one, no, not one person said to me, "Gosh, how disappointing!" No, I'm
0: or gosh, What a well, letdown! You no, know, it, it was
1: absolutely in my mind, but that's just where I was because I thought we were better than that. I thought we could have done it, and we didn't. And I suppose that's the incredible moment about sport is you, you you get one chance to do it. You get that one day in, well, for Olympics in four years, to try and deliver the result you think you can, and if you don't, then. You live with that result the rest of your life. So the wonderful thing is that your life moves, you know, again, like anything you're grieving, life does move on. That's the most wonderful thing. You know, humans are very resilient and get through it and get by. But it became part of me and ultimately became a, a really positive part of me because I think when you are tested in those ways, you probably learn the most of yourself and you learn most about, well, what are you going to do with that now? What are you going to do with that that thing that's become part of you? What next? What now? I mean, all of us in the boat felt awful on that day, but all of us have, you know, absolutely come out the other side of it and are very happy now. So so it was, the grieving didn't last.
0: No, sure. At what point did you begin to feel defiant again, if I can use that word, about digging for gold?
1: I genuinely remember uh, stepping off from the podium, really upset still. All of us were upset in Beijing. And the first person other than our team I saw was my mum, who was also very emotional because she knew what it meant, and as a parent, it's the most horrible thing to have to watch—you know, your child going through such heartbreak very publicly. And so we did a big hug at that point, so an hour after the race, maybe. And she just said, "Promise me you'll be in London," because I think you'll do it. And I and I remember at the time thinking, "Whoa, I'm not even close to making that decision." I reflect now and think that uh, that's awesome of my mum to say that because you know that. if I get in it from anywhere. That's a bit of defiance of someone saying, "I've just I'm seeing you at your worst, lowest." heartbroken moment, but you'll you'll do it. You'll come back. And I did take two or three months away from the sport, just, you know, holidaying and, and getting away. But what really shifted for me, as soon as I made the decision to come back, suddenly having the new goal, the new focus, that kind of energised me in a very different way. That gathers everything and goes, right, and now I know where I'm going with this. Until I made the decision, I was probably a little bit, oh, gosh, how do I? Is this the end? Is this? Do I really want to do it? Am I committed? But as soon as I made the decision, then the commitment was just full on and it was it was kind of exciting to start again.
0: And of course, it all came good for you in London, that, that incredible summer that all of us enjoyed in 2012. And this sounds like a really trite, stupid question in all kinds of different ways, but how powerfully were you motivated by your three silvers when you raced in London. Was it the driving force or was it just here we go again, different place, same exercise?
1: It's it's not a trite question at all, actually it's a very good question because for London, so I was in a brilliant, brilliant partnership with Anna Watkins and we, three years together, we were never beaten once. So we won everything we did. We knew how good our boat was and we absolutely loved it. We loved training together. We loved racing together. We loved going out there. We loved the performance of it. The sort of narrative that built around me of these three silvers, could this be the gold? But as very aware afterwards, this sort of story that was built, if you don't succeed, try, try, try again and finally get it. But I probably wasn't living that. And I certainly wasn't experiencing London as a, putting Beijing to bed. wasn't sort of ghosts that I was trying to exercise or anything. The biggest thing about London was I felt I'd never had such an amazing opportunity. I was in this brilliant boat with the the most incredible rowing partner I could have asked for. It was going to be in front of a home crowd in our home piece of water and everything was going for us. We were both fit and well and strong. We had a great relationship with our coach. Everything was in play and we had some incredible opposition who absolutely, very openly, very publicly wanted to come and swallow the party for us. They were like, we're going to take the Brits down on their home ground.
0: Perfect storm.
1: Oh, yeah. So you're like, OK, if you want all this, bring it on. You know, it really became, this is the race, it's the biggest and it's the best and it will bring in the most pressure. But we have everything we need to deliver it. You know, I did get asked in, in media beforehand is this the one you can finally win? (laughs) Kind of message of like, will this be the one? And of course, you know, none of us know for sure. It's the joy of sport, no certainties. But I did feel this is our piece of water, our boat, our race. Nothing will stop us today. I loved it. And even the pain and agony. I loved that race. I loved that regatta. And I loved it being there, that everything came good. When you start off in the rowing clubs back up in Edinburgh with the chipping the ice off there on your own in crazy times in the morning and you wonder what if, what if one day you got to stand on an Olympic podium and, and the top step and all the years and all the ups and downs and it came good in London and it was worth every
0: single second of it. It was just incredible. And the day began well didn't it because you and Anna Watkins as I read the other day woke up to Whitney Houston.
1: <laughs> I mean
0: what, what day? day? Exactly. I mean, it doesn't
1: get better right? <laughs> it, was, uh, it wasn't a chance thing either. We had one of these, it's little things that kind of help I think in in those moments so we had a little sort of radio alarm clock thing that would go off every morning and we put our plugged our phone in or iPods or anything else we would take it in turns all the way through our training camps of choosing the song the night before to put on but we'd, we wouldn't tell the other one so sometimes you know, you'd try and surprise each other okay. and uh, it was always a bit of like hilarity doing what you could do but obviously, the biggest moment in our lives would be the Olympic final morning, and um, and we we didn't even need to discuss it or argue about it because Whitney Houston had died in 2012, so she died earlier that year, and we both been given her sort of greatest hits album separately, and uh, you know there's one song on it, and Whitney Houston sang it herself at the Olympic Games. It's called One Moment in Time, and it's all about this: give me one moment, don't give me the result, don't give me the answer, just give me the opportunity, put it in my hands, and leave it to me to deliver. And we both kind of just felt that's what we've got. We've got the best chance in the world being presented to us and we wanted to deliver it. So we did wake up, but we were probably awake before the alarm clicked. (laughs) You just lie in bed pretending to sleep, waiting for the moment.
0: Staring at the ceiling. And when you sat on the start line that day with the crowds going bananas and all of that history backed up behind you and the emotion of all of that, are you clear-headed at that point? Are you so laser-focused that everything else is extraneous?
1: I was in London. And I wasn't in every Olympic game final, I have to be honest. I'm someone who likes emotion. I like to tap into emotion. I find it a very good place of source of inspiration and energy. But for me, I generally didn't know if I tapped into it in London, if I would be able to deal with it because of what it meant, because of what it meant to me and so many other people. So I sat in Starlin and although it's the only race in my life We sat on the start line and we heard the crowd 2,000 metres away. I mean, that's how loud the London crowds were. So I was conscious of it. I knew what the moment meant. Everyone you saw that morning who wished us luck. Everyone was quite emotional before we boated and before we raced. But I knew I didn't want to tap into that emotion. I thought it's the one time in my career I wouldn't be able to necessarily cope with it. So I was very clear-headed on the start line. More than ever, just focused on process. Just focused on what I need to think about You know, I didn't need to think about what this moment meant. I knew in my very bones what it meant. And the lovely thing, there was two of us in the boat and because you are away from other people and other crowds at that moment, it's very quiet and you just turn around and there's a few words said between you and and you just said, look, and you just know. You just know what this is about to do. But that's it and then it's back to what do I need to do to get that first stroke of the race right because that's the most important thing I've got to do now is get that first stroke right. And it was very practical and rational and, again, bringing the focus so tight and so narrow that that's what I need to think about and that's all and that's what I'll control and I will not let could this be the one or how many people are watching or what did I do in Beijing or anything. I couldn't let any of that crash my mind at that point. So I almost had this sort of bulletproof thing around my my mind so
0: the only thoughts I was thinking was just very practical, calm thoughts. And did it all just tumble out at the finish line? Was it relief? Was it pure joy? Was it a mixture of all of those things? This
1: is so good because um, I know I'm lucky. I know a lot of people who have won many more Olympic titles than me. And most people will say the first feeling you'll get is relief just because thank, thank goodness it's, got, like, it's over and it's done and we've done it well. I remember thinking, I don't want it to be relief. That doesn't feel the best emotion to feel, but you have no choice. It's like every emotion. They, you don't choose them, they come to you. But I remember crossing the line, and I, Anna and I were slightly different in this, but I held from that start line right to the finish line. I'd held that, not letting emotion come in, just not thinking, not reacting, not thinking past the finish line, not thinking, oh, we could be, you know, if we're winning, we could win this. Didn't even think about it until we crossed the line, wouldn't let myself. So as soon as we crossed the finish line, it was almost like I just ripped off that lid and would just let it all come in. And honestly, my first emotion was joy, utter, utter joy. Then it was relief, relief quite quickly. But joy was the first thing I felt. And I mean, how lucky were, were both of us that day? You know, we we knew instantly it was a clear win, instant joy and relief. And then you've got 30,000 people around you who were celebrating with you instantaneously. Yeah, I mean, the emotions flood in, in a fabulous way. And I didn't find it kind of flooding with tears, no, I can't cope. It was just joy. It was just pure gorgeous happiness.
0: How lovely what what an amazing thing to have experienced and also to not be totally overcome actually because I think many people would and indeed have been haven't they so to actually fully be able to immerse yourself in it and enjoy it in that way quite probably quite unique I would suggest. It
1: was it yeah it was just really really special and there comes that moment when you're standing on the podium and you know you're, you're having the national anthem played and you've got many thousands of people singing slightly out of tune and um, <laughs> and, you, and you're and watching the flag's got the flagpole and I think that that's when it sinks in because it's that really quite iconic moment you've seen all your heroes in sport do with, with the flag going up and the, the anthem being played and you just think this is so this really is quite special and not many people get to have that so yeah that's
0: when it sort of sank in well Obviously, you went again in Rio, didn't you? Pulled out another silver medal. No British woman has ever won medals at five different Olympics, Catherine. You you really did leave a legacy. Knocked down a fair bit, kept climbing back up, and I think coupled with your obvious talents, I'd say your defiance is pretty much a model reference point for all aspiring sportsmen and women. Will you allow me to finish with the last paragraph of your autobiography? Because I think it says quite a lot about who you are and, and what you achieved. So you wrote here, whatever the result of the challenge, it's worth being out there in the dust and the dirt. It's worth the battle and the scars and the possible heartbreak. There are no guarantees in life, but in a way, that's what makes everything come alive. And of course, it's worth having dreams because you never know when and how they might come true. Never a true word spoken. Dame Catherine Granger, thank you so, so much. It's been a pleasure. It's
1: been my pleasure too, thank you.
0: You've been listening to Running On Emotion with me, Alistair Eakin, an Eakin Media production for Audi. If you've enjoyed listening, please subscribe, like, and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. Our hashtag is Running On Emotion, and you can find us on Twitter and Instagram. Sound is by Norman Goodman, and the series producer is Andrew Sampson. Thanks for listening.